Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. While many of us went about our daily and weekly tasks, back and forth to work off to the store throughout daily life, firefighters, corporate engineers, and disaster mitigation experts were fighting an hour-by-hour battle against a fire that continued to burn inside an already stricken ethanol plant in Peoria owned by Bioorgia. I got the man calling the shots on the phone, Peoria Interim Fire Chief Sean Solberger. Chief, I don't quite know um, how to say it here, but uh, what a time to be alive and be a Peoria firefighter this last week maybe is how I'll start. (laughs) Yeah, um, we would say that starting from last Wednesday night, um, it's been quite a challenge and a strain on uh, the Story Fire Department, for sure. Uh, so why don't you kind of help tell the story about how we got here to where we are now? So it came in um, as a fire alarm was the initial dispatch. Um, I was uh, off duty. It was after 8 o'clock at night. I heard it because that's what we're required to do is to, you know, listen to the scanner. Um, and then immediately after that, I got a call from dispatch said that they had heavy smoke showing. So we know the dangers that are involved with that address. It's been down there for a very long time. And so we got to the scene and what we had figured out instantly that we had a, uh, a collapse situation with a grain bin. Um, and at that particular point, we still had that smoking bin that everyone's kind of still seeing to this day. And truly at that point, um, we like to say that the pucker factor was very high, Mm. knowing what the dangers that are involved in that area. So we immediately got our resources down to the scene on that Wednesday night. Um, Our lead fire investigator, Brad Pearson, was already on the scene working with BioUrgia. They got me up to speed real quick on what was going on, and we were down there all night that night. Um, On Thursday, uh, we were notified by BioUrgia. Now, while this was still in this in the current state that it was in with the with the, the silos and the structural collapse potential and the secondary explosion potential, we were told by BioUrgia that OSHA was on the scene, um, and then this is relatively common that that they would be there, they'd work with BioUrgia, and basically we could leave. Mm-hmm. We had relayed to them as professionally as possible that we were very uncomfortable with that because we didn't know exactly still at that point what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. We left the scene on that Thursday, um, still a little uncomfortable as to what was going on. And then on that next Friday, which was just this last Friday, um, we got a call for smoke in the area. They had sent one engine response, which is standard from dispatch. We obviously recognized the address, obviously knew what was going on down there right then. So we sent a full response, which I'm so glad that we did, but we had a secondary fire in an area that was not related to the explosion. So we had to put our firefighters in a really tough spot to extinguish that fire. And then once we had that occurrence, that's when I implemented the fire watch, a 24-hour fire watch, Mm -hmm. just because at that point we really didn't know what we were dealing with. Um, We had our Mavis chief, which is Chip Wilmot. He's the fire chief out in Germantown Hills. He reached out immediately and said, hey, what do you need? I told him to come down to the scene. Hmm. He got some visual perspective. And then we gave him all the data that we had at that particular point. And then that's when things really started to unfold 
in regards to other agencies and resources and things like that. When was okay? So you, I, I love how you called it the pucker factor. I always in these situations am so fascinated to know and understand a person who's in your position who understands the moment when you realize, okay, the pucker factor is, you know, really high here. Uh, yep. When was that moment for you? For me, it was on Wednesday night as soon as I got on the scene. Yeah. No denying it. Uh, I've been down there several times. I worked down at Station 4 for a good portion of my career, and we were first response into that area. We've been on explosions. Um, we've been on all kinds of different emergencies down there, and obviously nothing to this magnitude. So as I was going down there, I'm just like, hey, we've had fires down there before. You know, what exactly are we dealing with? And as soon as I got there and I saw, you know, what everyone is still seeing, um, I don't know, the, the emotions, your mental state, realizing that you're a fire chief, you're in charge of this. Yeah. And, like, you already know that. But just to, to feel the reality of that was, was a little surreal. I was curious, too, to know about how everyone's been working together of, you know, the public service entities, Bioergia, all of that. Tell me about it. All of us working together. Um, we started leaning on Chicago. They came down. Everyone was fully aware of that. But then, obviously, Bioergia being in that industry, now we started getting input from other people in that field, and that was extremely beneficial as well. And that's the reason why this mitigation technique that we're doing right now, with not even flowing foam, we're just inserting an inner gas, nitrogen, high pressure, and basically snuffing out the oxygen and smoldering the fire down to darn near nothing has been extremely effective. You had mentioned that it took brain power from those with experience with things like grain elevators and grain silos that maybe the Peoria um, fire folks, including yourself, had not had as much of and, you know, maybe didn't know exactly what it was that you were dealing with. What do you uh, what is it that you lean on when you're trying to make decisions in that environment? And I really can't, I, to, be, to be honest with you, I've tried to do this with a good portion of my life, if not my career. Um, you're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with, no doubt about it. And then I think I would ask, okay, here we are now. Um, we're now in a phase where you are able to, you're able to take the 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 bulk of the response off the site from the uh, Peoria Fire Department's perspective, right? And then switch over to a different uh, approach, uh, a kind of just watch closely approach. Is that right? That is correct. So we still have fire watch on the scene. So we still have three off-duty personnel um, that are doing fire watch. We have an engine, which is a reserve engine, so it's not front line, that they can pull up, be able to mitigate a small situation if they felt like they needed it, or radio for more resources if we felt like we needed it. So um, I meet with the demolition crew. Kind of sounds like there's some inclement weather. So I think we're going to adjust to anticipate starting Sunday mm. at some point, and then pretty much all of next week. And then I think the last question I want to ask you, and as honest an answer as you can give, of course, something that people maybe either they don't understand or they don't like to think about a lot. They want to just go ahead. They want to trust everybody who's on the scene to do a good job. And, and I think everybody did in this case. But I wanted to ask you, how many times could you count 
were there moments where it could have gone south and it didn't? <laughs> I ran out of fingers and toes. Um, it's just it's, that that'd probably be very difficult to answer. It was almost on a, a, an hour by hour basis. Yeah. Um, as as the situation and I, and I had I thought that I had related accurately. Such an we had to constantly have analysis. So that's why I stayed on the scene as long as I have and yeah. dedicated as much time and attention to this is, is like, there's just so much constant analysis where that would be really difficult to answer. Cause I, to be honest with you, Cooper, I still don't feel great about it only from the perspective. Like I want to see these things down. Yeah. So you still have that reservation in the back of your mind that something potentially could still happen. And, and I've been accused a little bit of fear mongering, and and that's not the case at all. Mm. Um, this is just basically being aware. So utilizing all these resources, all the experts on the scene, um, I think every single one of them would tell you the same thing. We've all put our heads together and tried to come up with the best strategy hour by hour. Well, um, I have to say from my chair, Chief, I'll uh, be a little biased here. It's been amazing to watch you guys work, and under these circumstances, uh, I know how many ways that it can go and how many of those ways can be bad. And uh, to see how things have gone thus far, I will say, is is uh, very, very impressive. And so um, I want to personally say thank you for all the work that you did. Pass that along to your team, of course, and then everybody who was involved. Um, certainly hoping for the kind of resolution that we want to see out of this. But from uh, us to you, really uh, a big thank you on this. I truly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, uh, Cooper, to get to know you and, and give me the opportunity. It's difficult to overstate the intensity of the situation faced as crews managed that explosion and follow-up fire at the BioRigia plant at Peoria. We heard Interim Fire Chief Sean Solberger refer to the response as a, quote, hour-by-hour ordeal, which saw crews making difficult decisions in tough spots and perhaps even at times of potentially dire circumstances the entire time. The volatile scene, when a grain bin remains alight with fire, plenty of fear about secondary explosions with grain dust. But it's not just Peoria which deals with potential disasters like these. No, we also caught up with someone who has been there before and through something very similar and about how differently it can go half a continent away. We heard from him this week on WNBD's The Craig Collins Show. Uh, my producer, Ross, helped me out, uh, tried to find someone somewhere else in our country uh, who's dealt with something similar to the bioergia problem we have here in Peoria. Uh, the bioergia plant, as you know, is something that is still smoldering, or at least I think uh, the latest update is that maybe uh, new precautions are in place there. Uh, and so I bring in someone from somewhere else in the country. Uh, his name is David uh, Niemeyer. Uh, am I getting that right, by the way, David? Let me pause for a second. Yes, sir. David Niemeyer. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome to the show, David. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Uh, thank you for being on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened in your community. This was about a year ago. Uh, similar thing, an ethanol plant um, explosion, fire, and then you guys had to be very strategic about how you fought it, correct? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's exactly what happened. We had a, a plant that was making ethanol and then mixing it with, with high-octane gasoline to make uh, fuel for the racing industry and high-performance motorsports. And uh, in, in their process of mixing, an accident happened, and they had a fire uh, that developed in some of the tanks that they were mixing in. Um, at, at that point, that, that caused an explosion, and, and then the fire spread. 
Uh, it spread ra- rather rapidly, spread to some nearby cars, uh, that, that, uh, and then some of their delivery trucks. Wow. And, and was uh, impinging on some fuel tanks and, and other buildings when we arrived. So let me ask you this. Um, how long did the entire fight from when the fire started to when it was actually once again safe, how long did that entire process take? Uh, it was quite a quite a process for us for a, a rather small operation. You know, this was a rather small ethanol producing facility um, in the grand scheme of things. And we we had the fire came in, uh, I believe, just after lunchtime, around one one thirty, uh, and then we were um, we were considering the fire out uh, probably around nine thirty that evening. Wow. Okay. Uh, how did you fight it? Did you fight it using water? Did you fight it using foam? Uh, what were some of the decisions you guys made and how do you, because I've heard, uh, and certainly in our situation here, as it's been over a week since the initial explosion uh, at the plant, and they've brought in firefighter crews from Chicago, uh, from all the surrounding areas uh, to try to help fight this um, or, out, or keep it out is probably the better way to say it. Uh, how did you guys go about actually uh, beating that fire? Yeah, and that's the real trick with this stuff, right? Because it is a, a flammable liquid, and it does, you know, uh, it, it will spread with water. So it's not something that you can just put water on and, and put the fire out. The water is great for putting out the structures and, and vehicles, some of the things that this fire spreads to. But in our case, we were worried that, you know, adding water to to the area on fire, eventually that's going to overflow this the, the containment area yeah. and potentially have for lack of a better term, a wave of, of fire riding on top of, of water coming under responders. Um, we had some foam equipment that we have that, that uh, was purchased by the company at the time uh, that they came in. Uh, we we had that stuff on site. It was deemed that it wasn't uh, tactically, we weren't able to set it up safely wow. by, by how the fire was. By the time we got there, the fire had spread so fast and, and we had explosions occurring that we, we couldn't even get that equipment set up on time to, to you know, con, to, to make the, uh, the extinguishment. Um, we decided to evacuate the neighboring areas. We decided to protect uh, surrounding buildings and, and make a plan for that. Uh, and then for us, just kind of like what you guys are dealing with, we, we called in our mutual aid partners. We had a hazardous materials team from uh, a nearby agency. They, they responded out. We had drones. That we're in looking at the fire, looking, you know, even with infrared, seeing where the fire was burning inside the tanks. Um, we actually had a airport crash rig from the Portland International Airport that, uh, you know, it's about a 45 minute to an hour response to our, our scene. Wow. And they came out and used a special extinguishing agent called Purple K and were able to, to blanket the, 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 secondary containment area which had you know burning alcohol floating in it and and blanket that area and, and then get that out and we were able to you know to work on the structures uh, at that point our interim fire chief his name is sean uh, solberger uh he has for a week now uh, been on and off just there i think and firefighters have had a presence there uh, the entire time um several times it seems as though maybe the fire is out uh, and then, as you said, there's something still smoldering. There's something still going on. Uh, now there is actually a lot of fog in the area that might continue to delay efforts to fight this. Um, and I think they might be waiting to actually demolish some of the area. Uh, the explosion that happened there w- for your community, it actually did uh, destroy neighboring buildings and even um, destroyed some vehicles, uh, I think I saw. Uh, so it was a very large explosion for a very small area. And I guess it's sort of amazing at how quickly it went out. Was there a lot of fear that it would continue to, to just reignite somehow? 
yeah, absolutely. There was fear during the incident, um, not just with the ethanol there, but they had uh, they had large containers uh, of, of gasoline on site. There was fear of that that stuff exploding. Uh, we, we lost probably half a dozen cars and then two or three uh, full semi trucks there, wow. and then and then two full buildings that were disconnected from the ethanol production plant. And even, you know, in the, in the weeks that followed, um, part of my job here as a, as a community's fire marshal is dealing with the construction or deconstruction, if you will, and, and the permit process. And, and that was something that we were very cautious about as we went through the demolition of, of the site was that you know, they had to properly remove all the alcohol that was, was there. It, it spilled out of the containers that had failed. And, and the idea of, of not removing that properly, having some sort of reignition was sure. on our mind. Um, so, so even yeah, for you, even for you guys, the fire fighting itself took a day, um, but then with demolition, it was still several weeks of worrying about the potential for a dangerous situation to still uh, come back. Absolutely, and not just the idea of, of of fire, but the idea of environmental damage. You know, that where does this stuff go if it does leak? Getting into the city storm sewer systems creating potential explosive atmospheres, you know, downstream of these storm sewers, uh, and then obviously, uh, you know, contaminating, um, you know, creeks and streams and things nearby. So, yeah, this is a much bigger deal than than just the firefighting effort, and and it's definitely different than, uh, you know, putting out any other structure fire. Just one more question for you. Uh, David Niemeyer, he is the Fire and Life Safety Division Chief uh, out near Portland, Oregon, um, in Forest Grove, uh, and you dealt with a fire similar to the one at our BioUrgia plant about a year ago. Uh, Just the last question, is there anything that changes in your mind? Uh, I don't know if this was the first time you went to a ethanol plant explosion type of event, uh, but is there anything that changes in your mind or the way that you and other firefighters talk about dealing with a situation like this again, uh, obviously praying one doesn't happen, but is there, is there any sort of uh, impact that this has on future planning? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's, there's, there's projects coming in uh, right now in our, in our area, industrial projects that are, that are flammable liquid storage and then some processing. And both of those are, are of a concern to us, especially in light of this, you know, that, that happened just a year ago. And we're looking at these projects like we would any other time, but just with a little bit more of a, uh, hey, I've seen this happen, and here's why it's important to have these fire sprinkler systems. Here's why it's important to have these firewalls constructed. Uh, we're able to talk to these engineers and these architects. Uh, literally at this moment, I'm, I'm reviewing plans for a large uh, flammable liquid storage building just around the corner from where this fire occurred. And, and we're able to cite this incident and say this is why you have to make these, these fire code changes and, and build your building safer. Uh, thank you very much for your time, David. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, and uh, very, very happy to hear that this is something that actually uh, was not as challenging as even the one we're fighting here in Peoria, Illinois. Thank you for the call and hope you guys uh, get it figured out out there and stay safe. Curbing the prevalence of illegal guns, Illinois dignitaries celebrated a new ghost gun ban during a big press event in Chicago this past week. During the event, we heard from multiple top state leaders, including Governor J.B. Pritzker, as well as Illinois State Police Commissioner Brendan Kelly. I just want to thank all those involved today who gathered here for the signing of this bill, um, how important this bill is. Guns continue to be the weapons of mass destruction in our communities. They continue to snatch the lives of our children, burying our future and the hopes and the dreams that they had in them to achieve. 
ghost guns, which were created for the illegal use and the lack of accountability to trace, are one of the latest devious methods to bring death to our streets in the country and in Chicago and in Illinois. I'm grateful to Senator Collins, to Mayor Lightfoot, to Representative Buckner, Speaker Welch, Director Kelly, Pam Bosley, Delphine Curry, and Kathleen from GPAC, and of course, all those who have gathered here to be part of this and supporting this. And thank you, Governor Pritzker, who have committed not only his focus to ghost gun issue, but on this epidemic of gun violence that is killing us in our communities. I pray that, that Governor, you and other voices like yours will continue to push our Congress and our Senate to have federal legislation that continues to deal with this gun madness and this love affair with guns in America, banning assault weapons, continuing to make sure there's background checks for everybody, and closing all the loopholes. Governor, the gun, the gun laws we have to pass in this battle that has the CDC saying the number one cause of death of young people in America is guns. The number one cause. When are we going to take this cause up in the federal government? I thank you for not just your focus on this issue and the ghost guns, but also the dollars you have allocated to try and prevent and interrupt this plague that is traumatizing neighborhoods like this all around the country. I thank you also, Governor, finally, for bringing some compassion, accountability, and commitment back to the governor's office of this state. Please welcome with me Governor J.B. Pritzker. Well, thank you very much, Father Flager, and good morning, everyone. Illinois State Police Director Brendan Kelly, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Superintendent David Brown, local leaders in government and law enforcement, uh, advocates for justice here today, and courageous survivors of gun violence are here to share their stories. Reducing gun violence is among my highest priorities. Protecting law enforcement, giving police the tools and technology they need, modernizing our crime labs so that we can solve crimes faster, addressing the underlying root causes of violent crime. These are among the strategies that we're employing to eliminate uh, the violence that is taking too many of our residents' lives. Another strategy we're employing is focused on keeping deadly weapons out of the hands of the bad guys. Last summer, I signed the law the, the, that is the most comprehensive reform to our state firearms laws in over a generation, including universal background checks to keep guns from getting into the wrong hands. Today, we build on that progress by banning the sale and possession of the untraceable privately made firearms known as ghost guns. These are unregistered guns with no serial numbers that are often made at home or assembled from kits purchased online, and they become virtually untraceable. Ghost guns are deadly weapons with horrifying implications. Last year, over 20,000 ghost guns were involved in criminal investigations nationwide. Earlier this month, law enforcement seized a self-manufactured gun 
in the possession of a teenager at Oak Park River Forest High School. And last week, using the expressway security cameras my administration installed, Illinois State Police arrested individuals in connection with multiple armed carjackings. Among their weapons of choice, a ghost gun. The legislation that I signed last year closed the deadly loophole that prevented people with dangerous histories like violent criminals and domestic abusers from purchasing a weapon. That was a bipartisan-backed change, and for good reason. Today, we're taking the next step by banning ghost guns. We're making it so those very same people can't legally obtain an untraceable weapon on their own, circumventing the background check that responsible gun owners all go through. Why isn't this a bipartisan-backed bill? Because now it's an election year. So the NRA gun lobby has told Republicans they can't vote for a bill like that. So they didn't. A child should not be able to build an AR-15 like they're building a toy truck. Right. A convicted domestic abuser should not be able to evade scrutiny by using a 3D printer to make a gun. This law will ban those ghost guns and others and will help keep families and communities safe. Stopping the cycle of gun violence means utilizing all the tools in the toolbox, addressing poverty, disinvestment, lack of access to health care, mental health and substance use treatment. Since taking office, my administration, working with the General Assembly, has tripled the state's investments in programs to interrupt and prevent violence. We're recruiting and training a record number of new state police, building state-of-the-art labs to solve crime, and investing in the technology police need to catch the bad guys. And we're keeping illegal guns out of the hands of criminals by doing those things. In short, in an America where gun violence has become a scourge on so many neighborhoods, Illinois is taking a com common sense approach to advancing public safety and justice from all directions. With that, I have the great honor of introducing the bill's sponsor in our state Senate, the great leader, Jackie Collins. Good morning. Today, my legislation, House Bill 4383, is being signed into law to protect Illinois families from one of the deadliest public safety concerns. In this year alone, ghost guns have claimed more than 9,000 lives. Furthermore, the spike in the number of buy, build, shoot firearms puts our residents at constant increased risk of harm. For our black and brown communities who experience fatal gun violence far more than their white counterparts, this law will drive healing within the community. The attack on people of color occurring nationwide is fatiguing, disgusting, and unfounded. Our country must begin to prioritize the safety and well-being of these targeted individuals. And I am proud to lead that charge in Illinois. With this law, these easy to access weapons 
will be phased out of existence, promoting safe, legal gun ownership in every corner of the state. Ensuring all firearms have serialization allows our police force to conduct thorough investigations when crime strikes our neighborhoods. Though President Biden has enacted a national policy to crack down on the manufacture and distribution of ghost guns, his measure does not go far enough. The national policy doesn't include individuals. This legislation closes that loophole by calling for individual possessors of unserialized firearms to have them serialized within 180 days. Without this provision, ghost guns will continue to find their way into the hands of those who seek to harm others. Bringing home the baby milk and making sure parents know what they need. A major press event to inform parents in Peoria. Earlier this week, we hear from OSF pediatrician Dr. Terry Ho. I wanted to be able to be here today to be able to talk to you guys and answer some questions that we've been receiving as a pediatrician regarding the formula shortage. You know, as a pediatrician, uh, our job is to help guide parents, families um, about the health and uh, health of their children. And part of that includes their diet and their nutrition. And recently, with the formula shortages, we've just run into uh, what we consider a perfect storm of uh, issues that have led to uh, these problems that we're at today. Whether it's uh, possible concerns for bacterial contamination uh, at an Abbott factory, and include, and, and in addition to uh, supply chain issues, we're, we're seeing it hit close to home where a lot of our families and parents are calling and contacting us with questions about what to do and how to feed their child. So I wanted to share some of those questions and hopefully answer some of those questions that, uh, to everyone out there. So um, one of the big questions we're getting from families is, is it okay to stretch out my formula supply? So one of the thoughts is that if I add more water to my formula, I might be able to drag that supply that I have out. We really want to recommend against doing that. Uh, the main reason why is by watering down that formula, you're changing the nutritional composition of the formula. And we know that that can actually lead to some other harmful issues in your child. So try not to do that. Uh, actually, don't do that. And uh, make the formula per the recipe that's on the can or from your pediatrician. Um, another big question that we're getting is about the recipes that, you might be, that families are getting off of social media and getting passed around. We're seeing a lot of families question and ask us about making their own formulas from home. And what we know is that that can also be very, very dangerous. So formula is a complex combination of fats, proteins, uh, vitamins, and minerals that you likely are not going to be able to recreate uh, at home. In addition to that, by making your own formula, you also run the risk of bacterial contamination, which is one of the main issues about why we're in this place in the, in the first place. So we really recommend against looking at using those recipes. I know that we, you may get um, you know, recommendations from uh, uh, somebody, a, a grandparent that said that this is how, you know, we did it back then. But what we know is that formula is tried and true and there's uh, benefits to getting the canned formula that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get to again. Um, also getting questions from families about the specialty formulas. Um, if you go down the formula aisle, uh, normally there's all kinds of different formulas. And it can get confusing for a parent to know how to feed their baby and which formulas to use. And so uh, the specialty formulas are made for specific 
situations and uh, for uh, certain health situations. So we really want to recommend families to contact your pediatrician, contact us if you had a question about maybe a formula that you had access to. Um, we're seeing some new information about imported formulas. And so uh, for a while now, a lot of families will seek out formulas from other countries and you know, try to uh, get formulas from other sources. Um, I believe just recently there's going to be an FDA push to be able to have quicker access to some of those formulas. But again, if you had a question about that, direct them to us. And also, as you're looking for those formulas, I really recommend trying to buy them from a reputable source. You know, unfortunately, in a time like this and what we've seen during the pandemic is there are people out there that are trying to feed on your concerns and uh, on these issues. So reach out to us if you have those questions. Um, another question that we are getting is about toddler formula and even regular cow's milk. Um, there are kids who, uh, infants who as they get older may be candidates to be able to start toddler formula or even start whole milk a little bit earlier. We don't want to recommend families just do that on your own because not every child will be ready to handle that and some children um, won't be able to take that at all. So reach out to your pediatrician if you had those questions and you had those concerns. We know this is a very trying time and for a lot of parents, um, you know, as we've gotten through the pandemic now having to deal with this, it can be extra stressful. But as a pediatrician, we want to be able to be there for you to help guide you through this health concern as well. So reach out to your doctors, reach out to your, your pediatricians, and uh, we'll, we'll be there for you guys to help you through this feeding concern. I am Michelle Compton, the Child and Family Health Program Coordinator at Peoria City County Health Department. And I'm here today to talk about the status and the impact for our, uh, our WIC office locally. So I just want to clarify a little bit about the WIC program. WIC is a special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children. Um, we provide formula along with nutritious foods and nutrition education um, to WIC eligible families. To find out if you're WIC eligible, you can go on the Peoria City County Health Department website and the WIC page to see our income guidelines. Um, WIC offices are not able to keep formula on hand, so I like to mention that. So a, a person's not able to come to our office and leave with formula in hand. The way that it works is we load formula onto an EBT card for that participant to purchase at the store. If you do have additional formula to donate, Again, we're not able to keep it on hand here, so we recommend that you find a local community organization to donate that formula to. Each, WIC state, each state WIC program has a contract with specific formulas and specific sizes. So the type of formula that we're able to put onto the EBT card depends on that contract that we have. Here in Illinois, our primary contract formulas are Infamil brand. We do have a few specialty Similac products that we are able to provide. Our local WIC offices are working with our state vendor relations program to let them know about the shortage impacts here so that they can work with the vendors and try to locate uh, formula when possible. If you are not able to locate formula, um, as Dr. Ho previously mentioned, we're finding that if people are able and willing to travel a little bit further, they're usually able to locate that formula. It might mean traveling to a far end of the county or even out of the county. Um, but I would recommend that people anticipate having to spend a little more time looking and traveling for that formula. And then still, if you're not able to find it, if you are a WIC participant, we strongly encourage you to contact the WIC office. We may have received information from other participants 
a lot of times somebody will call us and let us know, hey, the Walmart had full shelves of formula today. So we can share that with you. Additionally, we can share that information with the state to let them know the severity of the shortage. And then additionally, just talking to your pediatrician about other options. Um, WIC has a number of options. So if you are a WIC participant and you typically receive a specific formula, we are able to switch you to a different formula if necessary. What we recommend avoiding um, would be any stockpiling of formula. We really encourage parents to try to only get what you need at the time. And I realize that this is a scary time. If you are um, stockpiling formula or having several weeks or months worth of formula, that is formula that's sitting in a pantry um, that could really be used by a child that needs it that day. So we really discourage people from stockpiling or, or buying excessive amounts of formula. And then as previously mentioned, we recommend avoiding any type of homemade formula or alternatives such as cow's milk, goat's milk, or other milk products. What you can do to help if you are not a WIC participant, since WIC is very specific in what participants can purchase, we encourage looking at other brands. So there are plenty of store brand formulas available that typically are the exact same ingredients. So talking with your pediatrician, comparing the labels, and you may be able to find a store brand that's almost the same product. And then looking at the sizes. So at most grocery stores, they have a small tag that says WIC approved, and you'll see that's typically the smaller cans. If you are not a WIC participant and you find a larger can, you purchasing that larger can frees up that smaller can for the WIC participant that might need that smaller can. Um, another way to help is breastfeeding. So I want to acknowledge that breastfeeding is not the right choice for everyone. There are medical reasons and personal reasons that people do choose not to breastfeed and that is perfectly fine. If you are a pregnant person or have a child at home and you are breastfeeding or considering breastfeeding, we strongly recommend considering this as an option. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends providing breast milk for at least one year. This recommendation is based on evidence that breast milk protects against a number of diseases, both for baby and for mom. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.